Welcome back after a very long tree under the tree. Um, this is Johan uh, again, um, and we have an old host, Tanvi Jiwa, here as a special guest to unpack her master's thesis. And it's really a remarkable piece of work that really speaks to expropriation very interesting way with reference to Concord cases, which is, of course, our jurisdiction. So welcome on as a guest, Tanvir. Thanks for coming on. Thanks so much, Johan. I'm glad that someone's taking in my interest uh, interest in my thesis other than the examiners. So it's always like a really huge pleasure. So when Johan approached me with this episode idea, I was just so excited because really no one can stop me when I'm thinking about my thesis. So I'm quite excited to be here. That's perfect. And then a perfect segue to jump in. What What is your thesis or what's the sort of topic and, and how did you come to it? So just very briefly, my master's thesis looked at courts ordering expropriation of unlawfully occupied land in cases where the unlawful occupation is just so huge. And just to give a brief introduction to a lot of people who might not be familiar with unlawful occupation, it's instances where someone comes and occupies land that is not owned by them without the consent of the owner. So if Johan was to come on my property and I do not know Johan, I have not allowed Johan to be on my property. I did not give him any consent and he doesn't have any relationship with my land. And he just comes and sets up a tent or you know any infrastructure and starts staying there. We will essentially say that Johan is unlawfully occupying my land, my property. And that's how you define unlawful occupation. And Essentially, recently in South Africa, we've seen an increasing number of unlawful occupiers, which we will discuss later on, I'm assuming, Johan, about, you know, where does this come from? Why is this happening? But my thesis looks at cases where there are, you know, unlawful occupiers in the thousands. I mean, the two cases I looked at, which we will discuss later, is Modeclip and Fisher, both cases where there were 40,000 and 60,000 unlawful occupiers respectively just at the moment of the mm. hearing. And that's uh, really, you know, a shit ton of people and you cannot evict them willy-nilly because you will not be able to provide them mm. with alternative accommodation because there's absolutely no way you will be able to house 40,000 people. And if you evict them, and they end up homeless, which we'll discuss later, is actually not allowed under South African law. But even if it were allowed, they would just come back to the land or go and unlawfully occupy another mm. piece of land. And the way I actually got in this, into this topic, Johan, is um, when I was interning at the Center for Applied Legal Studies, and mm. we had an urgent case of unlawful occupation. And if, if anyone has heard me speak before, I have undoubtedly spoken about that, so I apologize if I'm boring you. But we, this urgent matter was essentially we went to a very old building in the center of of town in Johannesburg, and the building was very dilapidated. And to housing law scholars, we we call this building a bad building, this type of building. And I just remember we were there on a Friday night, and while we were there, I could just I was looking at this building and I, and I kept thinking to myself, people are fighting to stay here because they really have nowhere else to go. It's not right. a joy to unlawful, unlawfully occupy land, but it's better to stay even in a dilapidated building than to be homeless. 
because it still provides you with way more, you know, resources that homelessness would afford you. And looking at that, I kept thinking to myself, the, the only way we can get around this is to either accommodate these occupiers somewhere else or let them stay. And I just want to point out that in that moment of the case, we had to take personal circumstances, which some of you might know, is just when you go and ask clients, you know, um, what has brought you here? How old are you? And so on. And you were meant to also speak to the oldest occupier and the youngest occupier to kind of get a broad example of the kind of people who stay there. And I think I had one of the hardest tasks in my legal career when I had to go and speak to the oldest person who stayed there, who was an, I think, 80 to 85-year-old wow. Black woman, I know, and who, who came from KZN, who was working nearby and was working at 85 to provide money for her household back home in KZN. And when I tried to explain to her that, you know, there was an eviction notice effectively from, you know, next week, you're going to be kicked out. What she told me is that's impossible. I bought this room. And she told me, right. And she told me she spent, she saved so much money and she bought this room from this random person and they can't evict her. And obviously to lawyers, you're going to think, okay, that's impossible. You can't buy land from someone who's not an owner, but to a lay person, most of the time that actually means nothing because how do yeah. you even check if someone's a landowner and then that that obviously was very heartbreaking to have this conversation but then going to speak to the youngest occupier i couldn't because the youngest occupier was a two-week-old baby and well exactly and it's like among 400 occupiers more or less we were they were all going to be kicked out and all of these people would have nowhere to stay and i and eventually, Cal's at the moment, I don't know what happened with the case later, but at the moment, we won on a technicality, which was that the municipality wasn't joined in the proceedings. Right. And what that meant was that the unlawful occupiers had six months to be relocated. And that didn't feel like a win to me, because that's still better than nothing to have six more months to look for somewhere else to stay. But I couldn't stop thinking about the lady I just mentioned. And other people in her position in other places that they don't have security of Kenya. They can be evicted just any other day. And that's when the idea of judicial expropriation came to mind. Because I don't want to go on for too long, so I'll just say one last thing, because a lot of us know that under the Housing Act, um, government is allowed to expropriate land for housing. Mm. But a the, the, you know, it's there, but no one uses it. So someone has to compel them to use it. And that's what I kept thinking. Why is no, why are courts not doing this? And that's when yeah. I come across judicial expropriation, essentially. Um, so I think we'll circle back to that. But first, uh, your thesis starts with a very powerful dedication. I don't know if you have it in front of you, if you, if you can maybe read it for the listeners and explain how you came to it. Um, uh, if, you, if, you, if it's not in front of you, I can read it and you can comment. No, don't worry. This is always here for some reason. <laughs> so my dedication says, um, to the kind and dignified people who have seen their homes demolished, to whom the law was neither friend nor savior, I hope you are never subjected to such again. Aluta continua. And the, I'm glad that I had introduced what happened at Cal earlier because 
these yeah. were the people that I was thinking about when I was writing this thesis because on the day that we went to court, which was effectively the Monday after having been in urgent court on, on Saturday, the whole of Saturday, um, when we were at court, we received a phone call that we were needed at the police station. And when we were at the police station, um, an eight-year-old girl ran to me and I, and I knew she was one of the occupiers, which is important for people to know, as I mentioned with the two-week-old baby, we're not just looking at adults. Kids grow yeah. up in unlawful on, on, on lawful occupied land as well. And she just, and I'm sorry, trigger warning for violence for everyone who's listening is mm-hmm. she showed me this bruise on her arm and she showed me that the red ants had thrown a brick at her. And she also had a bruise on her head. And we, we, we rushed straight from the police station to go to the location of the unlawful occupation. And effectively we saw that um, people's belongings had been thrown around, things that they had spent so much money saving and their homes were a wreck. Despite while you were in that, court yes while we were in court which yeah. and, and, and johan is picking up on this because he knows what that means is that the eviction should not have happened yeah you know and and this is what a lot of people know about the red ants is that this happens very often violence is used quite commonly in eviction proceedings in fact the court orders are sometimes not abided to pie is not respected and we will talk about this later but mm. these are the people who i kept thinking about when I was writing this thesis and I, when I was writing this dedication. That's really, that's really powerful. And uh, obviously everything um, in South Africa requires context and historical context specifically. And I think your thesis does a really good job uh, laying the foundation for that. And I wonder if briefly you can walk us through that, the, the, histor- the history around land dispossession and why that is leading into your thesis. Sure, I'm glad that that you mentioned context because I think you and I were having a discussion about how, you know, the way people talk about unlawful occupation. And I think a lot of people assume that it's just what they call land grabbers, right? Land invaders, just people wanting a piece of land and they're going to do what they can do to get it. And uh, that's really not the case. And I would hope that a lot of people listening can kind of get that and share that with people who they know because the, the way unlawful occupation happened over time is something that dates before apartheid. Um, Mm. When the settlers just came and Black Africans in South Africa actually had a formal, you know, they they had their own laws. And I think a lot of people don't understand that in that, for example, they had a land tenure system, which is known as communal land tenure. And to anyone who's not familiar with this term, it just means that there's no individual land ownership. Johan here doesn't own a piece of land individually, Tanvir here doesn't own a piece of land individually, but rather our community, you know, has access to this piece of land. Our animals can graze, our cattle can go and do what it must. And what the settlers decided about this idea was that it allows too much access for Black Mm. Africans. Black Africans can walk around where they want to, have access to whichever land they want to, and I, I really like that there is actually documentation on this because, yeah. you know, what they said, um, the settlers said that, and I'm going to quote, is they said that individual tenure was the ultimate solution to the native question. And you can see the dehumanizing lens through which you're looking at people. And this is why discussions about land are so important 
because essentially it goes back to people's humanity, equality, and dignity. And the way that settlers introduced individual land tenure was through the Glendre Act. And a lot of you know of Cecil Rhodes, and he was quite the prominent figure back then with this act. And it essentially was the first piece of legislation which replaced communal tenure. And after that, in 1913, which is, you know, a few years later, was introduced the Native Lands Act. And that's where the, gov the you know, as I'm saying the government, but rather people who decided that mm. they were entitled to rule because it was not democratic in any way, they yeah. took pieces of land that they called native areas. And if you were a Black African, you were only allowed to have access to land in these, on these plots that were scheduled native areas. And in fact, if you had initially, before this act came into play, ownership of other land, or even if after the act came into play, you tried to get ownership of land through a contract or through an agreement with a settler or anyone else to get land outside of the scheduled native areas, the contract was seen as, you know, null and, you know, yeah. void ab initio, which essentially means that the contract is not valid, the sale has not been made. And these, this Native Lands Act also came with another act in 1936, which was a very powerful act as well. And not to bore everyone, but I think these legislations are very important to try and understand, you know, the context of how exactly did displacement happen? Because I think there's always a very big focus on the Group Areas Act, which I will touch on later. But yeah. the Group Areas Act was only solidifying something that very much had taken place from before, yeah. you know, before apartheid. And even these acts that I'm talking about here right now, apartheid was not into place yet. And you could see yeah. dispossession happening. And what the Native Trust and Land Act did in 1936 is it, whatever the Native Land Act had created, it effectively cemented that. And how it did that was by the creation of a trust, which is called the South African Development Trust, which I will just call the trust. And mm. the trust was the, the entity that held the land, which essentially means that as a Black African, you were not able to own land in your own capacity. The trust yeah. owned the land for you. And even the rights that came under that were very, very limited. We consider that there were two forms, you know, of, I don't want to say ownership, but rather possession that you were allowed to have of the land. And it was in the, in the shape of a permission to occupy, which was known right. as a PTO, or a 99-year leasehold. Essentially, what this means is that you weren't able to sell the land, and for, which is one of the biggest assets to having land, really. And you had really limited access to those rights and yeah. to the land itself, and that controlled everything. And under these two acts, a lot of evictions took place. And then right. going a bit, I won't touch really on the urban areas, urban areas yet, Johan, but just mm -hmm. to give context that after this whole thing happened, you also had the Native Consolidation Act. And you see it's act building one on top of the other on top of the other, yeah. because clearly the acts that were there before were still not doing enough in the eyes of the settler. And you have the Native Urban Areas Act under which you know uh, a lot of Africans were entitled to come 
in urban areas, but not necessarily own land. It was a way yeah. to control employment, which we will probably discuss later. But just to finish, I want to finish on, on you know, the, the strongest legislation that they had back then, which I mentioned earlier, which is the Group Areas Act. And a lot of us know the Group Areas Act as the act that divided, you know, ownership and occupation of land based on your race. So that's what ultimately then causes the division between Africans, Indians, and colored people, and um, white people. And that happened in such a way that between 1960 and 1983, this act caused 7.5 million people to be forcibly removed from land. And this is in addition to more than 1 million people who had already been evicted and already been displaced before that. And I think one thing that really brings it back home for a lot of us who have been in South Africa or stay in South Africa is that this is the same act that is responsible for, cre- for creating areas like Mitchell's Plain or Chatsworth or El Dorado Park and Lanasia. And a, a, lot of know, a lot of us know um, these places to be places right now that are extremely under-resourced, places where you will not really see a lot of white people staying at, but rather a majority of black colored and Indian people staying in. And it created these areas by effectively destroying areas like, you know, District 6, which we talk about a lot, Fordsville, mm-hmm. Sophia Town. And there are many more, but these are the ones that I'm going to mention now. And just to say that the context is required because we already see that people, a lot of people, mostly black people and colored people and Indian people yeah. were dispossessed of land through law for a very, very long period of time. And when you look around you, you know, I like to make the example that if you're coming from Cape Town, from the Cape Town airport, you can see, you know, after a while, you can see the townships that are, you know, lining um, the main, the highway. And these are places that are created by laws like that. And it's clearly, it clearly hasn't been remedied because right now you have apartheid spatial planning where the townships are very much staying quite, they're quite far from main urban areas, which we, I will end on this note, really. That's, yeah, so, so I think that really transitions well or goes really well with the, the woman you interviewed um, because you spoke about some people potentially having shock that she would think she was buying uh, tenure by, by paying money, but we see through these systems, these systematic informalization of black tenure and black security. So very much uh, land and tenure is transacted off the out, outside of the deeds office. And so that's, that's a reality and a risk that our, the failures of our property system then force people into. And I was just wondering if you could speak about um, how uh, on on urban occupation, how, how there is now, uh, how it came to be that there are so many people with uh, specifically informal, um, unlawful tenure facing potential of eviction, um, and and in the in the context of the history that that you've just gone through. Sure, and um, you will recall that the first act I mentioned was the Glenbury Act you know, in addition to wanting to replace communal tenure with individual tenure, what it tried to, to do is control, um, they had a labor shortage, the settlers had a labor shortage, right. which makes quite a lot of sense because, you know, they came on boats, didn't really bring people <laughs> to work. 
and decided yeah. that, you know, whoever is there on the land will be the ones working for them. And they realized mm-hmm. quite quickly that, you know, the people who are available to them are, are not enough. And how are they going to control, you know, the influx of labor inside of urban areas? And I think Stanton is actually a very good example of that. Because when you look at Stanton, not too far away is Alexandra, a very big township in Johannesburg. And you can see that there's only one road that goes into Alexandra and only one road, the same road goes back into Santon. And that is very purposeful because the way townships were created was in such a way so that it could be far enough for white people not to hear um, whatever commotions are going on, you know, in, in their mind in townships, but with only one road going in and out so that it can be controlled. People can only leave through one avenue, which can be policed very easily. And that's just one example of how townships were essentially created as a means to provide labor to, um, to urban areas back in the day. And that was also controlled by, there, there was um, a 1937 Slums Act, which prevented Africans from acquiring land in urban areas. And there were many uh, pieces of legislation like that. There's also the prevention of squatting at um, what they what is called PISA, which is essentially replaced by Pi now, but it didn't allow for squatting and it didn't allow for unlawful occupation back then. And the whole point of that was that in a very simple way, black people must be close enough to be able to come to work without delaying everyone else, but they must also be far enough that we can forget that they exist when we come back from work. And it, it's cruel, but that's also the way it happened. And this is in the context of urban areas, but if we look at the work generally, you, we, we know that a lot of farmland required um, manual labor, which took the yeah. form of black people. And I know Johan, you do a lot of work with um, land and rural areas and so on. And yeah. you can see that even then, you, they, they was a, there was a lot of evictions that were happening in farmlands as well. Because there was this, you know, they, they wanted to prevent the possibility of what they called the guerrillas to move easily, you know, against the farm population, which was just in case there's an uprising, it must be far away from us. So I think that quite um, sums up the fact that people essentially were, Black people were not meant to have easy access to urban areas, according to settlers which is why now we see a crisis that people are constantly moving to from r- rural areas. And when we call this urbanization, to go to urban areas like the lady I mentioned, as, as you said, Johan, to go and provide for their family because there's not as many opportunities back in rural areas as there are in urban areas. Right. And so then we, so that I think some of that process it was intensifying in the 80s, but then becomes more pronounced in the 90s and 2000s. And that comes in with the replacement of um, other of legislation that allowed for easy eviction with the um, constitutional protections against uh, eviction and the Prevention of Illegal Evictions Act. And I was just wondering if you could quickly sort of walk us through that legal framework and, and particularly how the Constitutional Court has interpreted it for, for society. Of course, and um, this, is, this is probably one of my favorite pieces of legislation, right? Um, it, it's known commonly as PI, the main um, legislation under which 
you know, evictions is controlled uh, in, in mostly urban, not actually mostly urban areas, but rather it's used a lot in urban areas, let me put it this way, because there's a lot of unlawful occupation in urban areas for reasons I've mentioned before. But PI is the legislation I look at most in my thesis because it deals with unlawful occupation. And PI essentially um, is enacted to, to, enacted to give effect to section 26.3 of the constitution, which is the right to access um, to housing under section 26. But text section 26.3 says that you cannot be evicted from your home without a proper you know, court order. And what PI does is it provides a, a, what we call a procedural buffer. So it adds requirements that must be met before that eviction can actually take, um, take place. And a few of these requirements, for example, is that you know, alternative accommodation must be found for the people who are being evicted. Adequate notice must be given. And, the, and also these, these are just a, you know, a few requirements that I'm mentioning, because I won't go through all of them, but just to say that in addition to this, the way the Constitutional Court has interpreted PI has been quite progressive, and that, that is very pleasant to see because if you look at all the rights in the Bill of Rights, the right to access to housing is arguably one of the rights that has been the most litigated at the Constitutional Court. And we have very, very progressive jurisprudence on that. And in fact, one of my um, favorite judgments is the Berea judgment, where we are told that if eviction will lead to homelessness, then it cannot be a just and inequitable eviction. And I like this judgment because I personally, I think that it's one of those judgments that has the more, most practical you know, effects that can actually change the way um, evictions are carried out once the court gets to adjudicate it. But in addition to this, my actual all-time favorite judgment is PE municipality. And it introduces the concept of meaningful engagement. And what um, Justice Albie Sachs tried to do there is explain, you know, the context of how Pi came into play. And as I mentioned before, there was before Pi there was PISA, which is just the, the legislation under which evictions were being carried out. And what it did back then was just treating unlawful occupiers with no dignity at all, yeah. just because they do not own the land. And what Justice Sachs says in PA municipality is unlawful occupiers might not own the land, but they develop an interest in the land and, and a relationship with the land. And to me, that's of particular interest, not only because of my thesis, but also because, because you can actually see that. As I mentioned in the examples yeah. I've given before, even we'll talk about motor club later, but when you see unlawful occupation that has gone on for 15 years, you know, or even we don't even need to go that far, even a few years, even a few months, people develop relationships with the land, with what they call their home. And you are just, you know, calling them land invaders, land grabbers, and in fact, denying their realities and what has driven them to where they are right now. And PE municipality speaks to that and speaks to the fact that, in fact, we shouldn't even be calling them land grabbers. We shouldn't even be calling them land invaders. Mm. We should recognize their relationship that they have with the land and make sure that we meet all the requirements under PI 1, under constitutional court jurisprudence and just general jurisprudence in South Africa, but also add this 
you know, caveat of meaningful engagement, which is that the owner is the one who's supposed to be doing the eviction. But before doing that, they must actually go and speak to the unlawful occupiers. Because even when I was, um, you know, having a read of my piece of after so long, Johanna, I was thinking to myself, Mm. we always think about evictions, but we never realize that this doesn't have to be an eviction. This can be a conversation that is had that, oh, you know, the ownership of, because a lot of the cases is sometimes a bad building gets sold to another owner who wants to revamp it. And now they they just find out all of a sudden they are unlawful occupiers in the building. What happens now? And this can easily be remedied through a meaningful engagement without going to a court by having these discussions to, with unlawful occupiers and you know stakeholders and explaining to them that we will end up having to go into court, but we don't have to. You have a period of six months to find alternative accommodations and in this way treat them with the grace and the dignity that yeah. they deserve. Because their opinions and, you know, obviously matter as much as the landowners. And the last thing I will say about PA municipality and the reason it, it, it's my favorite judgment is because the, what Justice Sachs and the court does more generally is they kind of, you know, almost take the sanctity out of ownership away. And I like that a lot because, I mean, I'm, I'm one for just, property reform generally. I think the way we think about property should be restructured, yeah. completely changed because the way it has always worked is that ownership is the key. Ownership is the number one right that, right. that you have to the land. And if you are the owner, no, nothing else trumps that. And you know, the constitutional court in the municipality rethinks that. And obviously there are things that are, you're still entitled to do as an owner, but the court says that just because you're an owner doesn't mean yeah. you evicting unlawful occupiers is just inequitable. You still have to go through all of these things. And that is groundbreaking in and of itself. The fact that we don't always go to court just for the court to say, of course, you can evict people because, you know, you're the owner. And that's that on that. But rather, we have now a balancing exercise and a more nuanced conversation about the different interests of the parties at hand. That's, yeah, that's great. And that I think really lays the groundwork to then transition to what may not be your favorite constitutional court judgment in motor clip. So you've set out the requirement of meaningful engagement before uh, an eviction and a requirement that an eviction not cause homelessness. That's going to be something that's not designed to be very easy for one or two people. But the larger the group is, the more complicated that becomes. And I think that we then get into that in Motoclip. But perhaps in setting it out, I see in your thesis, you call it the Gabon uh, judgment. And I'd love if you can explain uh, explain that in the context of setting out the, the facts and, and what happened. Of course. Um, I think I'll start, I'll, I'll finish with why we call it Gabon and rather explain the way Modo Club turns out. And, and you're absolutely right. Modo Club is not my, one of my favorite <laughs> judgments. And I, but I find the facts of the Modo Club case fascinating because essentially Modo Club is the owner of the piece of land that was occupied in this case. And for, for context, this piece of land is in Johannesburg, and in Gauteng, sorry. It's in Gauteng and it's a piece of farmland in Gauteng. 
still live in an urban area, but a piece of farmland. And the reason I say this is because the land was so big that even though part of it was massively occupied, the owner had no idea. And that is not really of much relevance to the judgment, but that was just mind boggling to me that you can have people who have no use of land to the extent that it could be massively occupied and they would have no idea. And how Modi In a country when so many people are landless. Yes, yeah. absolutely, absolutely. The, the, the contrast is just insane. And the, the way Modoclub pans out is the municipality ends up telling Modoclub that your land is unlawfully occupied. Mm. And, you know, Modoclub doesn't know that, you know, as he hasn't read Pi, he doesn't know that he's the one who's supposed to be um, instituting the proceedings to get unlawful occupiers evicted and instead um, expect the municipality to do it. And at the time, there was only 400 people occupying the land, which I, I find extremely fascinating as well. So a lot of things happen in between. And I think I'll get back to that maybe a bit later when I talk to about the judgment instead of the facts. But essentially, Motorclip um, saps, tries to arrest the unlawful occupiers. Right, presses criminal charges against the unlawful occupiers for trespassing, which I think if anyone wants to look into the, um, the issue of you know, trespassing slash unlawful occupation, there's an earlier judgment that came out in 2020, if I'm not mistaken, the EFF was involved uh, mm. from the Constitutional Court. And I don't recall the, the referencing right now, but I know it was the number of the case was 201.19, if anyone is interested. But um, essentially charges them with trespass and arrests the unlawful occupiers. But interestingly enough, releases them almost not even a few days later because they simply do not have the the resources to accommodate this many people, wow, you know, right. which again, and, and tells Motorclip and the municipality, please don't even try to arrest them again. We don't try and handle this another way, which is why. And not, not, and, not because it's unconstitutional, but, but no. because of the logistics. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and the, the wow. facts really go hard. Okay. They, incredible. Um, so Modicum ends up going to the high court and I think the high court judge um, at the time didn't think this would be a big, a, a really big judgment, although already in this lapse between Modicum finding out that there was a lawful occupation, the unlawful occupation went from 400 people to 15,000 people. And the high court deals with this in a six-page judgment, which to me is really, wow. you know, yeah, absolutely. And orders that, oh, you know, this is a straightforward eviction case. Motorclub is the owner, evicted the unlawful occupiers, that's that on that. And this is even more interesting because Motorclub tries to get the, you know, court order executed. And the sheriff says, and of course at the time now it's more than 15,000 people. The sheriff says he simply cannot do it, which makes yeah. a lot of sense. And I think we're all sympathetic to the sheriff in this case, he cannot evict more than um, 15,000 people. And he tells Motorclub to go and get a security company to do that. At which stage, um, I think this is also very interesting, the security company quotes Motorclub 1.8 million rand 
which is at the time, Motoclip says it's not worth it. The piece of land itself is not worth that much money. The piece of land unlawful occupied, that is unlawfully occupied. So he doesn't see why he should bother. But right. actually, then he ends up, you know, going to the high court again, you know, to try to get the order enforced in a way that doesn't require him to approach a security company. And I think that high court order uh, judgment is much better because then it starts recognizing that, you know, this is actually not Motoclip's fault either, because I think we can be quite sympathet sympathetic to um, Motoclip to the extent that he is mm. simply not, no, I mean, to the extent that he cannot, he's, he's not able to get the municipality to do anything. And the reason I'm saying sympathetic, Johan, this is the fact I wanted to get to before, is between um, the municipality alarming him of the unlawful occupation and the first high court judgment. He tries to enter into negotiations with the municipality. He offers for them to buy it out, which to me right. is, you know, not yeah. bad at all. And the municipality drags him, him on for two years, you know, here and there, here and there, until and, and even puts an offer on the table only to withdraw it, which is why I mentioned earlier it goes from 400 occupiers to 15 thousand occupiers and the the police um the state in this case tries to blame motoclip for the delay and says that motoclip is responsible you know for the amount of occupiers right now and the high court really decides against it and says that instead the state should come back with a plan as to how um, it will be able to evict people in a humane way because um at the time there was also there wasn't a barrier judgment yet on homelessness and essentially the state was mm. tasked with finding alternative accommodation and come back to see how it can execute the order. And the state appealed this to the Supreme Court of Appeal. And I think the Supreme Court of Appeal judgment there is probably the best judgment in all the motor clip judgments at right. the state. Because the Supreme Court of Appeal says that, in fact, um, the state, you know, again, like I mentioned, tried to blame motor clip and it tries to talk to the horizontal application of section 25. And this is, I think, a good stage where I can mention that the two rights that are, I think, more prominently at play here in cases like this is one, um, we don't have a right to property in South Africa, but you have the right to have the property that you have to be protected against yeah. arbitrary inter interference, which I think is an important distinction, but we will not get into it right now. And the right to again, not be evicted without a court order, right? And it needs to be a just and equitable, you know, outcome as well. So essentially the, like motor clip right now cannot use his land and yeah. he's being arbitrarily deprived of his land under section 25.1. And the SCA says that, well, you know, this isn't motor clip's fault, it's actually the state's fault. And this to me is the most, one of the most maybe groundbreaking findings because it finds that the state by not providing housing to people, including the unlawful occupiers has rendered these orders inexecutable, which then infringes on motor clips right to, you know, not be arbitrarily deprived of property. And the right. reason I find that to be groundbreaking is because it does not, Sure, it does not really deal with the, you know, it has a throwaway line, I think, about horizontal application of Section 25, but 
it doesn't go into blaming the unlawful occupiers. It doesn't go into, you know, the unlawful occupiers are the ones snatching away the Section 25-1 right of of motor club and rather places the blame where it really should be because it is absolutely true. The state has constantly been failing, you know, even outside the motor club judgment, but especially in the motor club judgment. And the, I think, for of interest for my thesis is the one line that the Supreme Court of Appeals says, which is essentially, oh, in an ideal world, the state would have expropriated this land. And to me, that was like, oh, you know, okay. But it leaves the door open, and I'm sure we will discuss this later. And it says, but we don't know if courts can or cannot expropriate. Right. That sounds and- like a good thesis topic. <laughs> exactly my thoughts you <laughs> and um it ends up the, the obviously the judgment ends up at the constitutional court but the reason for that is because by this ground, groundbreaking finding that i did i mentioned the supreme court of appeal says that well you know you are depriving a motor clip of his land you know and in in um infringing on his section 25 one right and also infringing if you were to evict you know, um, the unlawful occupiers, it would be unjust and inequitable and infringing on their Section 263 rights. Because I want to make the distinction just quickly. I had mentioned yeah. earlier that unlawful occupiers have an interest in the land. The unlawfully, unlawful occupiers do not have a right to unlawful occup- unlawfully occupy. That right. doesn't exist, right? So I, in fact, even the term is crazy. They, don't, they do not have the right to occupy land. Rather, they have a protection and a right to not be evicted unjustly and inequitably from this occupation. And the Supreme Court of Appeal says that, okay, well, the state should then pay constitutional damages to motor clip until you can develop a program under which you can humanely evict the unlawful occupiers in motor clip, you need to pay motor clip um, constitutional damages. And that was also very fascinating to me, Johan. And in fact, one of the first things yeah. I thought about when I thought of this topic was that you are paying rent to motor clip. Essentially, that, that almost, yeah. that's what it felt like. It, it and, is. And, and uh, you know, that seems quite inadequate. Uh, I, you know, I think maybe we can get into the meat together with the Fisher case, but it feels like it's inadequate because you're taking away the land, you're paying for the land, but yes. you're not then putting in, you sort of still assuming this eviction will happen, be it in five years, 10 years, 15 years, in 30 years, 100 years. Every year that goes by that you live on that operation and you pay state money on that yes. assumption, it, it, be, it becomes less and less logical um, to me. Absolutely. So, yeah. No, absolutely. I 100% agree with you. I could see how at the time, if you are not willing to discuss judicial expropriation, there's no other way out but to say, um, you know, we will, again, like I mentioned, we'll do, like you mentioned, we'll discuss it in Fisher. But at the time, what the Supreme Court of Appeal did, you cannot really blame it for going that route either, because if you're not going to expropriate the land, which it says, ideally, that's what the state would have done, and you're not willing to discuss whether the court can order the state to do it, there's no other way but to order constitutional damages. And I agree with you, I think constitutional damages in these cases are outrageous, because you're, like you mentioned, you're effectively paying for the land, but you're not getting the benefits of the land. 
So it, yeah. it really makes no sense. But essentially, this case goes to the Constitutional Court. And I think the Constitutional Court does a real mastery of not dealing with the subject at all right, in the Constitutional right, right. Court judgment. And what it says is actually, you know, people have a right to remedy. People have a right to access to courts. And essentially, if orders are not executable, then the law means nothing, which in this case, uh, Modoclip was denied of, you know, this right to remedy. It was denied of this right to access to justice. And Modoclip at the time even made a, um, an argument under the right to equality, in fact. And I think the Constitutional Court quite, you know, <laughs> almost tatters around the subject. And yeah. I cannot blame them. I think otherwise it would have been a very complicated uh, topic to deal with. But I, I do, I, I feel robbed of, you know, a discussion of what are, yeah. what are the implications of Section 25 and 26 interaction? Does a horizontal application exist on Section 25-1? Because um, the court even says, you know, we don't even need to deal with that. And the court has the line as well, even the constitutional court where it says, we don't know, we don't know if courts can evict, you know, but yeah. we don't, I mean, not evict, we don't know if courts can order expropriation of land, yes, but yes, we're yes. not going to get into it. And be because of these findings, it ends up going with constitutional damages as well and endorses this finding of the SCA. And one last thing as to why I call it Gabon is because when I was writing this thesis, I was in Johannesburg and I thought to myself, I want to go to the motor clip land. I want to see yeah. where it is now, you know? And because I had, I had seen a lot had been written about it and I want everyone to know that this judgment came out in 2005 at the Constitutional Court. And at the time there were 40,000 occupiers. And you can imagine that this unlawful occupation had been even going on for years before 2005. That's just when it was finalized at the Concord. And we all know that takes forever to go through the whole process of all, all the courts. And I essentially went to Motor Club land in 2020 and I was quite shocked. I had no thought that P, um, the unlawful occupiers would be evicted. And let me explain why. The constitutional damages was meant to happen until the evictions take place. Yeah. Now, we already talked about the fact that in two years, the unlawful occupiers went from 400 to 15,000. When the judgment, when the case reached the constitutional court, we were talking 40,000 occupiers. This keeps increasing exponentially, this number. And when I went to Motorclub, I had found that, in fact, this piece of land had almost, you know, it had expanded in territory. We, you are now dealing with a proper informal settlement. And I'm sure you saw the photos in my thesis there, Johan. I took some photos. And the, the, the photos that I took showed that this informal settlement has access to water, has access to electricity, has creches, has different kind of resources that helps a community, you know, um, anchor itself. And yeah. the reason I thought about that was these, um, looking at Gabon, looking at the people who live in Gabon, most of them probably don't even know that there is a constant sword of eviction hanging over their head because that's essentially yeah. what it is, you know? But they are here, they have homes, they have access to electricity, they have creches, you could see kids playing around, there's a community, there's an informal settlement. 
and I looked at, at Gabon and I thought to myself, there is no way the state can evict anyone from there anymore. Yeah. And it can definitely, at least under the guise of the motor clip judgment, and it can definitely not give motor clip his land back. The way yeah. you look at the informal settlement, it, it is a permanent settlement now. And yeah. I kept thinking to myself, well, there goes the state paying constitutional damages for the rest of motor clip's life and to motor and to whoever inherits that piece of land eternally. And the, essentially, I think that it was a very, very interesting thing for me to note because, you know, obviously who knows what the constitutional court would have decided with the foresight of seeing how um, the set, it turned out into a settlement. But also I think we will later discuss this, but to me, what this highlights is the moment the unlawful occupation gets beyond a certain number of occupiers, the state is doomed because it will keep increasing and it will have a level of permanency that will make all evictions unjust and inequitable. There is yeah. no way, and it was definitely more than 40,000 people in that informal settlement anymore. There is no way you can evict um, the people who are staying there in a way that's just and equitable and humane and in compliance with their rights to dignity. Any eviction of all these people would essentially be unconstitutional. Yeah. Not to mention incredibly expensive yes, uh, to, I mean, to do it in a remotely dignified fashion, like uh, or incredibly violent, you know, the or, or, or both, yeah. yeah. Detrimental to the state in any event, under any yeah. scenario you might, you know, think of it. So we're getting, we're probably going too long, but it's too interesting. So maybe if you could, in discussing then. Fisher, maybe start introducing judicial expropriation, why you see that as a more suitable approach than the double sure. judgment. I'm really sorry to everyone and Johan. I get really carried away when I talk about housing generally. Me too. But, Me too. <laughs> um, but Fisher is a very interesting case. It's more or less, I won't go into the facts because I think they're I, very I similar. Say, I was the... with I was at the LRC when the occupation started and did some of the first affidavit so disclaimer or whatever but um yeah it's incredible to be following from day one when it was the marikana philippi settlement yeah yes i was going to say that the disclaimer that this is about to get very interesting because clearly johan has insight as well on this um so i won't talk to the facts but essentially at the time that um it's very similar to motor mm. except that the number of occupiers at the time was 60,000 people and it was in, in Cape Town and it was, um, you know, the Marikana settlement as um, Johan mentioned. But so talking about Fisher is interesting because you see Fisher, Fisher is a quite a recent judgment and it only came out a few years ago. And you see Fisher with the hindsight of Modiclip. Knowing how Modiclip turns out, you look at Fisher and you think to yourself, will the court do something different? And interestingly, yes, the court did do something different. Uh, the high court in this case said that um, they, they actually just kind of, you know, decided that we cannot order land expropriation. And just to say that um, when, the, when Fisher was adjudicated, Dladla had also come out. And in Dladla, the court had been very harsh because you know, there had been whispers of judicial expropriation then and the court absolutely shut it down, didn't engage with it, just, you know, mentioned separation of powers and just kind of said that 
you cannot do that. And it, it could be for many reasons. It could be for the fact that judicial expropriation is not allowed, but it's not really discussing that. I think it was more, you know, kind of shitting on the lower courts and saying that, oh, you know, how could you penalize the owner in such a way? But what Fisher does in endorsing Bladla's approach to judicial expropriation, instead says the state should go back and negotiate with the landowners and try to have a settlement and essentially, you know, enter into a contract of sale, sell the land to the state. And the, this was interesting because it gave the state a timeline and said that if you cannot come back with an agreement, come back to us. And I think yeah. that creates this very nice thing of if the state had to take a decision like this, right? Because um, there were two options. The state could have entered into this contract, which is known as a buyout, you know, enter into the contract with the owners of the land. There were three or more at the time. Uh, or alternatively, under the Housing Act, the municipality is allowed to expropriate the land. Right. And the court says that either enter into this contract, into this buyout, or go and expropriate the land. And if you don't do either, come back to us. And that's interesting because the decision to expropriate the land by the municipality would effectively constitute administrative action. And the court would then be allowed to review that administrative action right. and decide whether that was that action was well taken, that decision was well taken. And effectively, you know, in a in a roundabout way, order the state to expropriate the land. Um, I thought this was interesting for the purposes of my thesis because it still it still doesn't answer the question. Can the court just, you know, without going through the municipality and through the Housing Act, order expropriation? not really, I mean, based on the high court judgment, but we don't have higher authority on that. But rather, it's quite an interesting way that they went around it. But just for anyone who's interested, this judgment was appealed to the SCA, but before the SCA could hear about it, a settlement was reached. And I think you can see right. it all on the SERI website. The SERI does, I mean, SERI does amazing work. And in this case, mm -hmm. it represented the unlawful occupiers in the Fisher case. That's really that's really helpful, and I think really gets us then to the heart heart of the of your thesis, and probably be helpful to do a quick refresher for everyone on what expropriation is before then maybe summarizing what uh, why it would make sense in this context. Sure. So um, expropriation is when the state comes and essentially takes ownership of your land, and a very a very um, straightforward example, if Johan owns land, and for some reason the state wants this land, and you know there are obviously caveats under which you can and cannot expropriate land, it has to be public interest in the public interest and a lot of other caveats, but it can go and seize Johan's uh, land, and it can award um, Johan with the compensation that's calculated under the Expropriation Act, and in, in some cases um, also, that can be with no compensation at all, but usually it is at market mm -hmm. value. And uh, the interesting thing about expropriation and the reason I thought about it for this case is because expropriation allows you to kind of bypass the negotiations that you have with owners. And also the fact that often owners might not want to sell the land, right? In Modoclip, yeah. it so happened that Modoclip wanted to sell the land, but in many cases of occupied land, although people might never get their land back because the local occupation will not stop, they still don't want to sell the land. And that's one way of, you know, getting by the owner's consent and just actually seizing the land and paying it at market value 
And then the state can be the owner of the land, which then goes into other things like, you know, it could develop housing programs around this land. It yeah. could do a lot of things. Transfer title to the occupiers. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, uh, Provide security of tenure. Yes. And, and I think it really then is an elegant solution to, uh, to the problem we were discussing earlier of this indefinite sort of eviction hanging over and people being forced to live in a liminal, dig undignified space, where, which um, when expropriation is on the table, it means we're actively making a choice to put them in that position as opposed to taking a more definitive action. So um, in terms of then, what the, the expropriation to me just seems like an elegant uh, solution. But I know in your thesis, you go through um, some fairly learned scholars uh, who, are, who are suggesting that, that uh, courts shouldn't be or, or can't rather expropriate. And um, maybe if you can walk us through what they're saying and, and, and say how you respond to them. Sure. Um, I think it's interesting because late Professor Vanderwald is obviously, you know, the leading scholar for constitutional mm. property law generally. And I think he's fairly generous on the topic of judicial expropriation. He thought that as it stands right now, judicial expropriation will only be allowed if there is legislation strictly allowing for this to happen, which was not the case. And right. he was more in favor of administrative um, expropriation, which is kind of, you know, what I mentioned before, judicial review of the, uh, of the decision to expropriate or not, um, you know, under administrative uh, law. But I think what was interesting is he was definitely leaning towards the fact that, oh, maybe they should be allowed to do it. But it's, it's, he was, I think he was quite open in the fact that he is un almost, you know, unsure whether it can yeah. happen because the courts haven't discussed it. So until the courts discuss it, we can't really know. So I don't think there was necessarily, um, uh, there was necessarily, you know, harsh no, absolutely no judicial expropriation can, cannot happen from academics per se. Even right. um, Jackie Dugard writes about, you know, Motorclip itself, you know, um, a very great article, you know, co called Revisiting Motorclip. And um, Dugard discusses how, you know, um, Professor Dugard kind of talks about is judicial expropriation allowed? And she leaves the question open and she kind of says that, you know, she goes through Van der Waals' argument and she kind of says that, you know, she, she tends to agree with Van der Waals that we, right now we're looking at administrative expropriation or otherwise if there's leg uh, legislation coming into play. But really what she, what her articles boils down to is the fact that courts are not discussing this and we are at a disadvantage because courts are not discussing this. And she highlights the fact that, you know, as things are going, this conversation is going to become more and more prominent. And we, we need to have this conversation because we need to kind of keep an eye out. And essentially, the, the, the way I go around this judicial expropriation argument yeah. is I say that we don't really need legislation to allow for judicial expropriation. Why would we need it? when we have section 172.1b of the constitution that allows the court, and especially in this case, the constitutional court to take a just and um, do it, you know, a just and equitable order. And yeah. just and equitable order is a very, very wide term. It allows for a lot of discretion. And it's kind of this, you know, in French, you will say this manche too, like this 
the speed, everything. You try to get everything under that umbrella that you ever wanted to. And I, I say that, you know, under Section 172.1b, the court could expropriate the land if it finds it to be a just and equitable order and a just remedy to what is currently happening, which as I'll probably explain later, which I argue in Fisher and in Modeclip would have both been just and equitable orders. Right, and, and maybe uh, we, we've started touching on this already, but maybe if you can then unpack why, why expropriation would be the just and equitable order as opposed to what uh, uh, the orders granted, particularly in Modeclip. Sure, um, yeah, like, uh, you, you did say that we, we've spoken about it a, a bit, or we've already spoken about how constitutional damages is quite of a crazy remedy when you look at Modeclip <laughs> happening now. You know, almost 20 years later, the court is still, the state is essentially what I keep calling paying rent to motor clubs to allow unlawful occupiers to, to stay. And the reason that's problematic is because essentially the state cannot do anything with that land. It's motor clips yeah. land. Motor clip can't do anything with it. Motor clip can't, um, he can't sell them. No one's going to buy the land. Yeah. from him with unlawful occupiers staying there. And whether we want it or not, the value of the land keeps decreasing, you know, for many reasons, and mostly because there is unlawful occupation um, on there. Um, Motor Group doesn't even have possession of the land. Yeah. He's not on the land. And essentially, a lot of the rights that fall under the rights to ownership, a lot of the benefits that you usually accrue to the land, Motor Group does not have. And to me... That means that that limitation that we spoke about, which the SCA admits to, to be there, you know, that limitation of Section 25.1 right of motor clubs is continuously engaged to the point that to me, it becomes unjustifiable to limit his right to that extent. A lot of times we accept that certain limitation of rights are justifiable because of its temporary nature. Here, it has absolutely no temporary nature. Motor club in effect is, you know, in, Informality, legality, it is the owner of the piece of land because you know his deed is registered and so on. But in effect, he's essentially not the owner of the land anymore, except for the constitutional damages. But even more harshly to me, the this limbo that unlawful occupiers are put yeah. in because of this judgment, because of the fact that constitutional damages are being paid, is that they have no idea that this is something that could happen. You know, but yet they have no security of tenure, which means that any day the, the state could come and evict them from the land under the motor club judgment, you know, and we'll see how the red ants do that. And, you know, that would happen, but there's still no security of tenure. They don't have ownership of the land, although they've stayed there for so long, which is problematic because the state has a duty to provide access to housing to people. Yeah. And if instead of constitutional damages, the court had expropriated the land, made the state the due owner of this unlawfully unlocked, uh, occupied land, you could have had what we call an in-situ upgrading, right? Upgrading yeah. the informal settlement. You could have provided the unlawful occupiers with security of tenure. You could have provided them with so many legitimate resources and access to services that they are entitled to under the South African yeah. constitution, which now you rob them of. And to me, why this is more frustrating is because usually courts, you know, prioritize the owner. But here you can't even say that the owner is actually yeah. being prioritized. Yeah. You know, Motor Club was willing to sell the land back in the day to the municipality. 
And here you have an owner who doesn't really, can't really do anything with the land. And you have a local occupiers who don't actually have land either. So, yeah, yeah I mean, that's really, to me, that's why a just and equitable order is an order that is in the, in the best interest of both parties. And to me, constitutional damages wasn't in the best interest of any party, not even the yeah. state. Yeah, because I, I do understand that there's a separation of powers issue, but yes. separation of powers are really intruded in by saying you must make annual payments of or, or whatever the payments are under motive. Yes. So it's not yes. like there's a financial question here that at least then you'll have certainty of, of what the, the cost is. So, yeah. Johan, if I may, um, I just want to touch Please. quickly on, on, you know, on the separation of powers issue. I think that is the main hurdle that you would touch with yeah. uh, an order like this, as you've mentioned, because essentially for a lot of our listeners might not know, separation of powers is just the principle that very brief, very simply, every branch of government has its own role and it's not supposed to interfere and overly, you know, step, you know, or rather step over that line that's defined and actually do the job of the other branches of the government. In this case, the court cannot tell the state how to do its job essentially. And expropriation is something that under the Expropriation Act and the Housing Act is almost like strictly limited to the case, except yeah. for what I argue, of course. And this, that's the state's job. And it, it makes sense because the state has their budget. The state knows what its housing programs are. The state knows when it's supposed to expropriate land allegedly. And the court cannot come and you know, say how the state should do it. But to me, as I expand in the the judgment court, in the thesis, the reason why um, the court doesn't really, can overcome the separation of powers issue is because the separation of powers principle is a very, very flexible principle. And I, I make this metaphor in my thesis that I really like in that using the example of the branches, it's the separation of powers and the principle of government generally and democracy is that it's a tree. It has to be flexible and sometimes the branches have to touch each other, which is why we have right. checks and balances. And if you have issues, for example, where you have an absolute housing crisis dating before apartheid, which has been rendered worse by inaction from the state, where you, we call it a formal housing crisis because the market value of houses right now is absolutely exorbitant. It could exclude a very, very big part of the population, which drives them to informal settlements, which drives them to unlawful occupation. And unless you cater to them by giving effect to their Section 26 rights, you will keep having this crisis. And sometimes, like we've seen in Mulase, and we've seen in a lot of other judgments, when the state doesn't act, it has to be forced to act. And I don't think separation of powers should be a cop-out. And I think the Constitutional Court in Doctors for Life also talks about the bogeyman of separation of powers. You know, it's always raised yeah. as an excuse why the court shouldn't do something. When in fact, you know, it, it really, to me, it shouldn't be a cop-out. The, the answer is clear here. And it, to me, it would be a very, very minor, if any, kind of overreach that there is. And definitely if we've seen overreached, overreaches before, it would not be as big as what we've seen. Right, so just to get to your conclusion then, I'd love if you can read the opening quote to your conclusion and maybe take us out by speaking to how your thesis uh, engages with that, that quote. Sure, let me just quickly, okay, great. So, um, 
the quote is from Bu Zikode, who is the president of Abakhlali Basem Jondolo. And on Freedom Day 2019, what they said was that, you know, quote unquote, we have no reason to celebrate this so-called freedom while we live in indignity. We have no reason to celebrate freedom while we have no land. We have no reason to celebrate freedom when many of us remain without safe and dignified homes and continue at the, continually at the mercy of evictions, fires and floods in our shacks. And um, I thought that was a very powerful quote, especially coming from you know, the president of Abakhlali Basin Jondolo because they do a lot of good work when it comes to housing and very, very powerful community organization, you know, and we, we, you, we've got to love organizations like that because it really deals with the communities at hand and themselves, you know, being in leadership. And this is a big part of meaningful engagement just generally. But I 100% agree. I think a lot of us have these discussions about the progressive nature of our constitution when in fact, um, we don't see these rights coming into play. And that's why I get particularly frustrated in the context of housing, because as we've discussed before, Johan, the jurisprudence on housing is so rich. You know, the yeah. legislation is there, everything is there. It's just in practice, it's not happening. And what we haven't really um, discussed, but I'll go through briefly, is the fact that the state is failing in so many different ways to provide housing to the point that it keeps going over budget in its provision of RDP housing, to the extent that Terry has documented this, it spends more money repairing RDP houses that already exist because of the bad infrastructure that was into play. You know, this like loss of budget, wasting of expenditure in so many ways that people, this, even the discussion that I have in my thesis, and a lot of us know about this is, you know, the way to the queue, the queue of people, you know, the alleged queue of people who are waiting for housing. And Seri has um, debunked this myth. There is no, there is no queue that people are yeah. jumping by unlawfully occupying land and trying to get access to housing. That queue does not exist. People who have applied for RDP housing, there's no, there's no such thing. We haven't even been able to find a list of these people. Seri documents this in depth. And it goes back to Zikoru's quote, which is just that it's almost like nothing is being done. You have those rights here, but those rights mean the right to access to housing means nothing. If you don't have a yeah. house, yeah. you know? So I think that would really um, be it on my side, Johan. It's just a lot of frustration. And what I think, the, I think judicial expropriation could really cure that because we'd go back to the discussion about how Modi Club didn't even know his land was being occupied. I mean, yeah. come on. Exactly. No, I think you make a really compelling case, and, and I hope we, I hope people start taking it up, and I hope people also engage with it. So well, well done on a great thesis. Thanks for coming on, and uh, see you back on the pod soon, I hope. Thanks so much, Johan. I really appreciated the opportunity, and if anyone wants to read my thesis, drop me a DM on Twitter, at Sanvirjiwa. I'll be very happy to share my thesis with you and discuss it. Thank you so much, Tanvir. This land is your land, and this land is my land. From California to the New York Island, from the Redwood Forest to the Gulf Stream waters, this land was made for you and me.
I went a walking that ribbon of highway, and I saw above me that endless skyway. I saw below me that golden valley. This land was made for you and me.